Are you looking for a new math curriculum? CTC Math specializes in providing online video tutorials that take a multi-sensory approach to learning, creative graphics and animation synchronized with the friendly voice of internationally acclaimed teacher Pat Murray makes learning math easy and effective. Favorably reviewed and Kathy Duffy's 103 top picks and the Old Schoolhouse Crew review. The lessons are short and concise to help your child break down concepts and appreciate math in a whole new way. Visit ctcmath.com today to start your free trial. That's ctcmath.com. You're back. I'm so glad. This is Julie Bogart, and you're listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. Today is a bonus episode. We've launched our new co-hosting episodes with Melissa Wiley on the last show. But this recording is simply between me and today's guest. I think you're going to really enjoy it. When I first invited you to start sharing with me topics that you'd like addressed on the podcast through our text messaging service, which you can join, by the way, by going to the show notes and clicking on the link to join our little pod ring. The number one requested topic is what to do about your children and screens. How do you manage iPads, televisions, gaming systems, your cell phone, your children's cell phones, and all the myriad ways we access technology today? I know that we all wring our hands, we get nervous, we're worried that we're somehow damaging our children by allowing them to watch television. I was noting not too long ago that I have never felt guilt listening to the radio, and yet I feel tons of guilt about watching television. Why is that? I noticed I never felt guilt about listening to a podcast or listening to an audiobook. And yet there's something about Instagram and social media that makes me feel these twinges of guilt. Somewhere in our understanding of screens, the visual input is registering with us, I don't know, as overwhelm as too much, or have we just been brainwashed that somehow when you add a visual component, it is something that you should monitor and be concerned about, particularly for children. So because you've been asking and asking and asking, I found someone who can really address that sort of nervousness that we all feel around screen time. Today's guest is Devora Heitner. She wrote a book that was sort of a runaway seller, kind of like one of those sleeper books that just took off called Screenwise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Devora Heitner is a PhD who studied media, technology, and society at Northwestern University. She works with communities, schools, and companies across the United States to help them raise children who are smart in the ways that they engage technology. When we met, we had like one of those warm-up phone calls where we get to know each other, and it was difficult to hang up. She matches my energy beat for beat. Devora is so sharp. And here's the best part. She's not afraid of technology. 
She's not coming in to add more shame, guilt, or blame to what you already feel when you turn on a digital device. Rather, she's going to help us answer our most pressing questions about gaming, about social media, about the use of screens with young children. So I hope you'll stay with me and listen to what Devorah has to say. Hello, Devorah. Welcome. Hi there, Julie. It's so great to see you. Yeah, it's fun. We had such a nice phone call. It's good to actually see you in person. We're wearing the same color. I'm noticing that right away. <laughs> yes, we're in harmony. That, a like, nice... late, yes, that, that winter, those winter palettes. Yeah, we look like two glasses of uh, Cabernet or something, this <laughs> nice dark uh, red color. So I am thrilled to have you here. I know that my community in particular is constantly dealing with the demands of tech. They work online, a lot of the parents. The students use iPads and laptops very freely. There is a sense of unlimited access that is a part of the homeschooling life. You know, whereas kids who go to school get on a bus and leave their homes and their computers behind and have some limits placed on them while they're in the classroom. Kids who live at home and go to school at home and play at home are around those tantalizing tech gadgets all day long, every day. And for the very harried parent who is involved in breastfeeding a baby and chasing a toddler and raising four other children, sometimes the tech acts as babysitter or acts as distraction while she's just getting a few minutes of peace to put the baby to sleep. And that tension between availability and stewardship seems to be the biggest challenge our families face. So I wanted to start with that understanding. When we're talking about tech, it is becoming increasingly difficult to just set a boundary with it. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because the devices are also everywhere in our homes. So the idea of like, you're going to have this big desktop and the computer in the living room that everyone's going to be able to, you know, sort of watch over. Kids are, you know, have devices they can put in their pocket. They have watches. It's really complicated. And they're playing games too, right? They've got Nintendo mm -hmm. Switch and they have um, VR is coming so big. And I found myself being a very uh, sort of fuddy-duddy old woman when I was watching ads for VR. I finally experienced virtual reality at the Van Gogh experience, one of these immersive uh technology, art experiences. And I found it fascinating, but I also found it worrying. And I noticed myself not responding with, wow, what a great new idea. But oh no, this is going to be another way where our eyes are literally focused on something other than human beings. So as you look into this future, and we're going to talk about all the ways we can handle technology what is your feeling? Is it optimistic? Is it dystopian? Is it negative? Where are you with the, the sort of revolution of technology? I'm really optimistic for our kids that they can have great experiences. And I'm concerned that the world doesn't necessarily have our children and our emerging adults and our teenagers in mind, right? So I think we need to, because clearly the big tech companies do not, they are not thinking about our families and our kids' welfare but we can. And what I'm seeing is from communities like the homeschool community, tremendous innovation in tech from kids. So what we want to see is kids 
making sure that they understand that that these are devices that are here to support us, to support our thinking, and we're not there to support them. You never want to be running, you know, you never want your tech to be running you. You want to be running it and using it when it enhances your learning, enhances your connections with others, and to be able to put it away when it's not doing those things. That makes total sense. So do you think that parents have justifiable concerns about tech, or do you think that their concerns are mostly overblown? I, I understand why parents are so concerned and I have empathy. I'm, I have a teenager. I have a 13 year old. I'm living it too. There are a lot of reasons to be concerned, but I think sometimes when we get super nervous, we can actually either react in a very limiting controlling way, which doesn't tend to work and our kids will go around us or in a throw up our hands way, which is also not ideal because it can leave our kids kind of to drown in the deep end. And what we need to do is focus on how can we understand this better? How can we mentor our kids? How can we take our own lived experience and social wisdom and apply it to this new reality, even though it's a little different than where we were as kids? You know, that is my favorite um, sort of distinction you make in your book, ScreenWise. You talk about the parents or the adults in the relationship being mentors rather than monitors. Can you explain what you mean by that difference? Absolutely. I mean, mentoring is about setting kids up for success and making their own decisions. It's about helping them move forward you know, if they've made a mistake, if they've posted something in the group text and now their friends are mad at them. Mentoring is setting our kids up for ultimately adulthood and independence and monitoring is about catching them. And we don't want to focus on catching Mm. our kids doing the wrong thing. Some monitoring may be part of a mentoring strategy, but ultimately we need to focus on teaching our kids to do the right thing, not just catching them doing the wrong thing. Um, Because the next time they mess up, we might not be there or we might not even know about it. And so they need to have the skills to move forward and so much of mentoring is this ongoing conversation. It's letting them into our own, you know, tech mishaps, you know, the time we forgot to BCC or replied <laughs> all when we shouldn't, or, you know, shared someone's news before it was fully public and we didn't realize. I mean, we've all made those kinds of errors and many others. We've all gotten into conflicts, you know, on texting or on social. And so helping our kids figure out like, well, how did we move forward from that? And that's mentoring, right? It's not about, again, catching them. Um, or even anticipating everything that could go wrong, but helping them also build their character and build mm. their own decision making so that they have a core to return to if they're in a tough dilemma, you know, if they're in a situation where someone has shared something that concerns them or, you know, is not very nice, for example, they'll have some some things to to fall back on, not just, oh, if my mom or dad sees this, I'll be in trouble. Oh, that's that reminds me a little bit of some wisdom I got from a parent when I was raising teens. She had kids older than me, and we were discussing the value of a curfew. Should there be a curfew? And she made the decision not to have a curfew with her kids because she never wanted them to rush to get home because she was afraid of car accidents in the middle of the night. So their agreement was that her kids would let her know when they were leaving. And the agreement was that they would leave within a certain time frame. And if she hadn't heard from them, then she could reach out to them, call, whatever. And I took that really to heart. It felt like that really nice balance that you're talking about. How would you apply that then to children of different age ranges? So a five-year-old, very different than a 15-year-old. Do you believe in filters, child locks, um, tech-proofing? you know, making it so that kids can't access certain sites or are you sort of against that? How do you see that? 
I think you can do it, but you have to recognize the limitations. In other words, say you don't want your kid to see pornography. Let's just like talk about things we might not want our kids to see. A lot of us don't want our kids seeing pornography for good reasons. Um, We can block pornography on our home router, but we also need to talk to our kids because they could literally go to a homeschool meetup or a scouting trip and a kid can show them their own phone. They could walk into a public library and someone could be looking at porn. Like I saw that at a public library. I saw a kid just scrolling up and down on a tiny window of porn. And I thought, wow, I didn't think you could do that in a library. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean a library is, you know, a place where information is free and accessible, which is great. And for the most part, I think we all are, you know, down for that. Um, but that is a one of the trickier parts of living in a culture with with free access and living living with the internet. So they're not going to block the internet at the library. So we need to talk to our kids about pornography and why we don't want that to be where they get their information about sexuality and relationships and love and all of that or even about sort of puberty or gender, any of that. So it's it's so important that we give them other sources of information. And porn is just one example, but I think it's a good one because I think so many parents don't want their kids to see it and even their teenagers. And it's important to know that kids can run into it by accident, especially when they're younger, searching all kinds of topics like on YouTube or some of these other places. And it's important that even if you filter, you just need to recognize that they could run into something and you don't want them not to tell you And you don't want to just assume that everything's cool and you never need to talk to them about, you know, for little kids, it's like, well, if you see naked people on the internet and if for older kids, you can call it what it is and talk about the industry and why it's problematic, why it represents, you know, sex and sexuality in a way that doesn't align with your values, all of that. But, but the important thing is you can't ignore it just because you filtered the internet, unless you're planning for your kids to never leave the house, never be around other kids with their devices right? You have to have those conversations. And that's also true with violence. That's also true with other kinds of content. You might not want them watching. It might be true with Netflix shows. You know, I didn't watch, want my kid watching Squid Game, um, which is a, was a tremendously violent show that a lot of young middle schoolers were watching. Yep. Yep. In fact, one of the things my son told me, he went to our local high school for a couple of years And he said that they had all of these blockers on the computers so that teens couldn't access things. He said the only people who couldn't access anything were the teachers. The teens all knew how to hack around any blocker. And so half these kids are being raised in an environment where they're learning how to actually perform tech. They're not just consumers of it like their parents. Wouldn't that be is that something you've noticed in your work Absolutely. with teens? And so, and so when we, exactly. So when we sort of build a wall, our kids are like, how high is the wall? How long is it going to take me to scale it? And so again, I'm not saying, I mean, I do think there's a place for limiting, you know, things on the router, or if you have, you know, six kids in a huge house, maybe you do want to just shut everything down at night versus collecting the devices at night, which I do in my small home for my one kid, I can just take the devices physically at night and put them away. But maybe if you're in a bigger space with more children, that's like really cumbersome and turning them all into bricks at night by shutting down the router might be a really great way to get some sleep. Um, but you have to recognize that there's always that possibility your kid has gone around you. So you also have to give them the message of why it's important to sleep, right? Yeah, it's that, not just no, that like, makes sense. Yes. Not yes. just because mom will bust you, but because actually sleep is so crucial for mental and physical health, you know, and having that buy-in because one day they will be living independently and they'll need to go to sleep or one day they'll be living independently and you'll want them to have access to information about sex that isn't pornography or one day they'll be living independently and you'll want them to be able to solve a, a tricky communication conundrum with a friend 
And so it can't only be about, you know, this external regulation. And I, it's, it's sort of amazing to me that we kind of believe that, that tech will solve the problems that tech creates, (laughs) but it's like, no, tech is not going to solve the problems that tech creates. Well, it's an interesting question because I think also I'm noticing a shift in younger generations reaction to phones. So for instance, in my peer group, I'm 61. So people in their fifties and sixties, we're very married to our phones and find it hard to put them down. I've watched my millennial kids and they've kind of adopted this cultural understanding that when you go out to dinner, you're not on your phone, like the opposite of their parents, the opposite of what you'd expect. Part of what I'm wondering then is, is the growing up with tech helping to neutralize some of that spell binding power that was cast on those of us who didn't have it. And it seemed like this magical solution. And we all just sort of fell in head first. Do you see that differentiation happening at all? Or is that just in my small milieu? I do think, I do think these younger generations and like as a Gen X parent, I even see sort of millennial parents at the schools that I speak at doing things a bit differently. Cause I think Gen Xers are also a bit captivated by our phones maybe. And, you know, we certainly grew up with a lot of TV um, in the (laughs) seventies and eighties. And now, you know, we're sort of like very into Netflix and Hulu and all of that. I do, I think, I mean, certainly younger, you know, millennial parents love their phones too, and they love social in some cases. Um, And it's hard to really generalize about a whole generation of parents, but but for sure they get it a little more because they did grow up maybe with like AIM or some of the early versions of what we now have as like group text and social. So things like Discord are going to be more familiar to them because they're more like chat rooms. And I think they are good at telling their friends and teenagers are great at this, just telling their friends, hey, dude, put down your phone. Like I'm right here. I think they're more comfortable saying things to one another and intervening in negative phone behaviors from one another, or sometimes calling out their parents, frankly. And we're less comfortable. Like if I go to brunch and a friend has her phone out, it takes a lot for me to be like, hey, could you put that away? I feel really awkward. But I think kids feel empowered in in a great way to be like, dude, put your phone away. Yeah. And they seem less obsessed with documenting. Uh, And I remember saying to one of my kids, my youngest daughter, so she's 26 now, I said something to her about taking photos and how is she storing them digitally? And does she feel the need to print them? You know, like all these questions. And she said, you know, photography for my age group is almost meaningless because there is so much documentation that it just feels like a lot of work to supply more. And for what purpose? She said, old photos seem pointless to me. And I grew up where photos were so cherished. It's the first thing you rescue from the house in a fire, right? Right. And so our obsession with documenting is left over from a time when you didn't have that many pictures. And our children are growing up with this sense that every peanut butter and jelly sandwich they eat is a new experience worthy of documentation on a photograph, right? right? So I think think that's why they like Snapchat. That's why they they like disappearing apps because they don't want to keep this archive. And that's why Facebook, you know, is like very archaic to them because for me, like my year in review is pleasant because I'm still like married to the same guy and I still am wearing the same outfits probably as I was in 2021 and 2020. And maybe even if I'm honest, like 2018, like I've been, you know, we're rocking the same fashion, doing the same thing with my hair. Whereas kids' identities are evolving more quickly. And they're like, I don't want to look at pictures of me from a year ago. That feels like ancient history. That's such an interesting point. I hadn't even considered that. And I think too, at this stage in their lives um, or in the evolution of the internet, photography and live streaming for me felt like 
being a TV celebrity, because that's the only model I ever had for that kind of streaming power. And we do see it. We see Insta stars and TikTok stars. I'm not saying that that doesn't evolve, but if everyone can be that, it stops holding the same enthrall, right? And so I do think that's an advantage for us to see that with kids. So talk to me a little bit then about this monitoring notion. Should a parent have access to everything on a child's social media, on their phone, on their group chats for online gaming? How far should a parent monitor a child's interactions? And I have a couple stories I want to tell you, but I first want to hear your thoughts and then I'm going to give you two stories to react to. Sure. So I think it's important to prepare kids versus reacting. And, you know, we want to, we obviously need to respond to things as they come up, but ideally we're preparing them before we get them a phone and maybe they're practicing texting with one or two close friends or cousins or, you know, other folks, even like, you know, older siblings that have launched to college on your phone before you get them a phone and you're working with them on expectations around the ways they'll interact. And maybe they know that they're going to get a phone and they're just going to text on it initially and not have social so you're building the habits that you want to see in a in a slow and steady way, and then they're ready for the experiences that they have. That doesn't mean they're not going to make mistakes. All kids will make mistakes with tech. They will all, you know, get at some point do something you wish they didn't do that they probably regret too. But if we can support them and, and use training wheels and scaffolding, uh, they're less likely to make the kinds of mistakes that are harder to recover from and more likely to just make the kind of usual developmental errors that they can move forward from pretty easily and, and are pretty common and typical. Uh, so it's it's really important. And I can give examples of those. I mean, that would be like texting someone a million times when you don't hear back, for example, which is not great, but it's also not the kind of thing that someone can't recover from and apologize for and move forward from. Um, And we just need to teach kids like, oh, remember other people might be sleeping or they might be away from their phone. Or if your friend is 12, they might've forgotten to charge their phone. Like there's a million reasons that they're not getting back to you. And it's probably not that they hate you, right? It's more likely (laughs) that they're just not able to respond at the moment. And and you want that freedom not to have to respond all the time. So that's an example of like a very typical kind of error that kids will make early on. And even adults with their phones will make that error of texting someone a thousand times and they can't reach them. So we want to give kids that preparation, those training wheels, that scaffolding. And then ideally we're using monitoring only as a backstop. Like if you're extremely concerned, if you have a kid who's in a mental health crisis, if you have a kid who's coming home from the hospital being an inpatient or a kid who has, you know, a severe eating disorder or substance issue or, you know, something like that, where maybe you're making a monitoring plan even with their therapist and their team. That it's not just you, but you're actually making an agreement like, hey, if you're going to go back on social, this has been dangerous for you in the past. We're going to monitor it for a while to keep you safe. And this is how we're going to do it. Or this is how we're going to also limit the time on it because it's been a trigger. Um, If you are just reading because you're curious or because your teen doesn't talk to you as much as they did when they were a little kid, that's not really a good thing to do because (laughs) it's, it's not helping your relationship. Their growing independence is a good thing that you want to celebrate. It's very typical and uh, developmentally appropriate for teenagers to keep more private from their parents, not because they have some bad secret, but because they are just having their own emotions and they're talking about things like, and there are things that you probably don't even really want to be hearing about. And you don't even want to see their friends, you know, like, like if your daughter's talking about like what she finds sexually attractive about, you know, boys say, and she's like talking with her friends about like, oh, I really like it. If he has a really nice butt, like, do you want to read that? 
<laughs> that might be a really appropriate, you know, thing for a 16 year old to be talking with their friends about, but that might not be really good for you to read, like, or like a, a crush on a movie star or, um, or their feelings about you. Like if they're really frustrated with you, should you be reading that? You know, what if you're frustrated with your kids? Would you want them to read that? Uh, and that's why we shouldn't post publicly about our, our children and our challenges with them. We should call a trusted friend or family member or a therapist, not post in public. So I, th I think it's so important that we really look at our motivations for why we would monitor. And if we are monitoring, I would do it with our kids' knowledge. So in other words, you could say, hey, 11, 12, 13-year-old, like we're getting you this new device. I want to look at it with you once a week for the first few weeks to see how it's going. Um, and that's a kind of a consensual monitoring where they're aware of it. They're they, they're not totally empowered to, I guess, say yes or no, because you're kind of making it a condition of having the device. But that's very different. And, and you're also communicating to them what your expectations are. Like, if my kid's going to group text and I'm going to read it, what are my expectations around language? What are my expectations around exclusion? If I don't communicate those in advance and then I'm just gotcha-ing my, my kid for doing the wrong thing, it's not really fair. Um, and again, it may not be helpful. It may be more helpful to try some scenarios on in advance, like before they're even on a group text to say, well, what will you do if a friend on the text says, well, let's start a new group text without so-and-so? Wow. I mean, that all of those scenarios, I, I should have written them down in order because they are all ones that I think are so critical. There's a difference between snooping going in somebody's private diary, going through their text messages because you want access to a child's interiors that they are choosing not to reveal to you versus keeping a child safe after they've had experiences online that have caused them harm. Uh, you brought up eating disorders. I remember in the mid-2000s, Tumblr became known as a place where eating disorders were thriving, whole communities around anorexia and bulimia. And these girls were falling down these rabbit holes and their parents didn't know because Tumblr looked just like a blog. Um, fan fiction. You think you're writing about Harry Potter, you're actually reading pornography, right? Like we, yeah, we found out that there was a lot of that going on. And these were, these in the early 2000s didn't have names and were not well known yet. Trolling was a term that got invented in what, 2005? So the problems uh, when I was raising kids were that we were inventing all the problems that we're now dealing with now. And uh, so the one story I wanted to tell is, my two daughters got really into Omegle, which was a roulette site. You go on and you just chat with whoever is there randomly. It was before. Oh, yeah. 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 Do you remember that? And it was before visuals. It's still a thing. There was an expose oh, it in, in Mother Jones that we can put in the show notes. It's yeah. actually pretty bad. No, it's horrible. Omegle became a video-based streaming site. So now it's just like porn. But back in the day, it was just roulette chat. And so they would go on and they were literally experimenting with making comments and noticing the feedback. And then you can just both leave and it has no way to trace you. So it felt it felt like a safe but risky place, which is what's enticing to teens, right? It's risk within a broader context of safety. Yes, so, yes, exactly. So when I first heard about it, I freaked out like a mother would. What if I mean you're talking to random people on the internet? I don't think that's a good idea. But then I sat with them and I watched them use it. And of course, because it was before visuals, there was a certain amount of safety, but then there were some gross people who showed up. So then we had some conversations about that. But then I found out 
that one of my daughters had made a friend and they were meeting outside now of Amagold. They had exchanged like social media and they were starting. And that made me so nervous. I'm like, who is this person? Um, but I didn't know about it. You know, it took time before I found out, maybe a month and a half, two months. And then when I found out he was a kid in New Zealand and I wanted to be sure that was true. So I said, okay, look, this looks okay, but I don't know if it's okay. So we actually did like um, a Zoom style meeting back in the day that didn't exist, but it was through Facebook. And we were able to see the home, the parents, and we established that as a relationship. And 10 years later, I traveled to New Zealand and my daughter came with me and they got to meet this person she met on this horrible roulette site. (laughs) Yeah. And so part of what I wanted to say um, by way of story is that just staying in tune with your kid is the key, right? Because if we just go by labels, sometimes we miss the moment with a child. And we, I think using our spidey sense, kind of what you said, um, entering into consensual monitoring, God, I, I want to put that in the show notes. I feel like that, that is the key. Um, if you are just sort of shutting things down based on a stereotype or a belief, and you don't actually hear the words your child is saying, which is, he's real, mom. And then following that up with them, I, I think that's where, what do you think? How do you think we yeah, handle I mean, that? So- we are friends because we met on the internet. And that's the thing that's so important. Like here I am talking to a stranger on the internet and I do it all the time. And both of us do this for our work all the time, right? Yes. Literally our jobs is talking to strangers on the internet and it sounds so weird, but you know, I've had strangers on the internet pick me up at the airport and take, drive me to their school where I speak to hundreds of people. But of course, you know, someone who's attached to an institution, like a school, like is probably not going to turn out to like also secretly be, you know, an ax murderer is going to ping me up at the airport and I'll never be heard from again. And there's a lot of people expecting me and it's, you know, a sort of a safe situation. But in, in fact, I'm going to meet a stranger on the internet and many, I'm, I am not personally, I was set up with my husband, but a lot of my friends are married to people they met on the internet. And that will be more and more true in coming generations that people will start collaborations, bands, artistic collaborations, like, writing projects with people they met on the internet. Does that mean that everyone who wants to meet children on the internet is a good person who's safe for your kids to meet? No, of course. And kids do have some special vulnerabilities. Um, And unfortunately, there are people who specifically want to do harm to children. So we do need to protect kids more than we would sort of protect ourselves. And even my friends who are dating, like on Tinder or whatever, you know, on whatever um, the other apps are right now, you know, they're doing things to protect their identities and themselves. They're not just going, you know, getting into a car with someone or inviting them over on a first date. They're meeting them in a public place and establishing a little bit of information about them. And with a with a child that your kid meets via gaming or via a site on like like Discord. I would absolutely do what you did, which is like have a Zoom meeting. And if, you know, the kids are under a certain age, like have their parents be in the meeting too and be like, I just need to see your parents for five minutes so we can like have some eye contact and like, you know, sort of make sure this is okay. Um, Because unfortunately, I also have talked to families where kids did meet someone on the the internet, on Discord or other sites, even on Roblox, you know, or something that seems so innocuous where maybe it was an older teen that was up to no good or had inappropriate content to share, or maybe it was an adult. Um, But that is very scary. And the younger your child is and the more kind of trusting they are, uh, the more I would be cautious about that. And I think a lot of parents are like, oh, my kid doesn't have a phone yet. We're fine. And they're on these cloud-based games like Roblox as, as seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And that's where I would be kind of making sure kids are empowered to know when to leave, that they know they don't have to be nice. 
if someone starts dropping negative language, hate speech, anything like that, they can leave right away. You don't have to be nice if that's happening. You don't have to explain. You can just go. Um, cause I, what I, what I find is that kids are socialized to be nice or they're socialized to be upstanders. And they're like sitting there telling someone why it's not okay to use a racial slur on Roblox. And I'm like, just get out of the situation. You're nine. You don't have to fix the internet. You can just leave. If it's your friends, you know, using unkind language or, or slurs or anything like that, like absolutely upstand away. But if it's someone you don't know, it's not worth your emotional energy. And that's a tricky thing to teach kids, right? That unfortunately, you know, getting into it with strangers on the internet is like, it can be harmful to us. And we have to save that energy for upstanding in situations where it can really help. I mean, it's tough for adults. <laughs> Read social media. Adults cannot resist the opportunity to uh, tell each other what they think. But yes, I love that. I think that's a really clear uh, example of the difference and honestly, one of the things I've noticed with my adult kids now who were, you know, kind of coming of age with the internet is that they see the internet that way. I don't. I have the hangovers from politeness, from this notion that I owe everybody an explanation for who I am. The internet is not built that way. It wasn't designed for that. And I think you're right. Conserving our emotional energy is really, really important Sometimes we spend it all online or we allow it to color our moods. I remember I had an organization, a, a women's community online where I would get very worked up and it would affect how I treated the family for the rest of the day. Or I'd be mentally writing all these messages in my brain thinking, you know, that I was one good post away from everybody getting it. Right. And so I think that is um, a coachable idea for teens. Well, for kids of all ages, really. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. <laughs> I keep getting asked, where do I start, Julie? What do I start with, with Brave Writer? You know, the best answer I can give you is this. If you're at the point where your child can read and handwrite, what you want to do is use my writing manual called Growing Brave Writers. It really takes you soup to nuts from making marks on the page all the way to editing a final draft of any paper your child writes. Whether your child is a reluctant writer or someone who enjoys writing, Growing Brave Writers is the place to start. Use discount code GBWPOD10, the number 10, GBWPOD10 to get 10% off when you order. You talked a little bit about television. I kind of wanted to pivot there because we're in this streaming world now. And uh -huh. I know with yeah, my- there's no end to it, right? It's no end. No end. I mean, when I'm with my granddaughter, you know, she can watch every episode of Bluey. It's not like over at 10, we'll watch tomorrow's episode tomorrow. There's four seasons and 10 episodes each and they just automatically queue up. Uh, and she knows that. She's two and a half. It's not like, I can fool her. <laughs> so how do we help? You know, I had the natural, okay, the show's over and now a dumb show's on that I don't want to watch. So I'm going to go outside and play. How can we help kids raised in this streaming era 
to put television in its proper place. Um, you talked about cultivating these attractive unplugged zones, and that's really where yeah. I'm kind of steering you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, if we want to think about balance, and especially after getting so much of our novelty during this long pandemic era, you know, from maybe the new Netflix, including as adults, like I'm still not eating out in new restaurants or going to plays as much as I was before. And so a lot of the novelty in my life or like traveling as much as I was. So a lot of the novelty comes from shows and TV and books for me. Um, so getting kids actually out to the library and to the bookstore, you know, more regularly, again, like rebuilding that as a habit. If you have little free libraries in your neighborhood, like actually stocking them and checking them and then going um, into, you know, re restocking the art supplies for kids of all ages and even just rotating like that trick. And I, I think homeschool families are probably really good at this. Like I was at a daycare and public school parent, except for the 18 months my kid was home. That's an adventure we can talk about. So I did, I did homeschool, but it wasn't by like plan. It wasn't planned. Um, but that, that whole, um, curation and, and switching things out is such a great way to get, make things new again, make, make old things new again. Um, you know, take the smelly markers away and put out the crepes or the watercolors and then take those away and put out something else. And it's not even always about buying always new things. It's about just actually less is more. Like when we give kids too many choices and we have 90 art supplies out, that's almost too much. And I don't want to make art, but if I see those crepes that I haven't seen in a while, I might just start, you know, kind of noodling around. And so having the musical instruments hanging on the wall so they're, they're attractive and accessible, not making the maybe the TV or the computer screen or the sort of nice screens in your house, the center of your home. Like a lot of homes are kind of the hearth is the TV. And for us, like we've, we for a while had it tucked away in a basement. Now it's kind of like in this back family room, but there's other attractive spaces to be. And we don't live in a big home, but like there are other kind of cozy, nice spaces to be that don't have tech that are like around the piano or around other stuff to do. Um, for my son, that's like D and D and role playing games, Magic the Gathering. There's like a lot of other games, board mm. games as well. He's very into like Axis and Allies and Risk, and nice. we try to keep those out so that we just remember to play them. Yeah, um, in fact, one of the things I often say is that the computer feels a bit like driving a car for a kid. It's an adult technology tool that they get to control that requires quite a bit of navigation, so they feel really cool when they're on the computer or when they're on one of these devices or these gaming devices. And so to ask them to leave that, to sit on a couch, I, it's just, it's not interesting. So if you can give them a commensurate experience using the KitchenAid mixer, learning how to use a power drill or power saw, uh, helping them actually build something that like, you know, with erector sets or a, um, a model airplane, things that require dexterity and sophistication and even a little risk really helps kids move away from the computer. So when you talked about attractive unplugged spaces, in some cases, it just needs to be worthy of their yes. risk-taking natures. It can't and just to, be, here's yeah. the alternative and it's just not quite as fun or quite as and good. And to nudge them off these how-to spaces. Like if they're on YouTube learning how to bake, then they can make dinner or make cupcakes. Yes. If they're on Pinterest, you know, learning about cool pumpkin carving techniques, like make sure they know some knife safety and get a pumpkin out. Like I think that we want to use some of this how-to content and say, okay, you can watch this, but then I want to see you do it. Like, I don't want you to just stay and watch and scroll and scroll. I want to see you 
creating and some of that creating might be online, right? So they might, so I always say like, we want to look at screen time and say, are we creating versus consuming? But some Oof. of it might be taking a lot of this how-to content and especially YouTube. So much of it is like how to organize the bathroom. Like I wish someone in my house would watch those or make up <laughs> tutorials. No one here is interested in how-to of any of those. They're all interested in like how to game yeah. um, or how to predict <laughs> world events or how to remix uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, but if you do have a kid who's into, you know, baking or crafting content, which is a huge amount of these, these spaces, there's so much good stuff, then see what they can, you can do about having them actually create. And of course our kids can be making dinner. They can be planning meals from a very young age and kids all over the world are doing this. Um, and our kids in, especially in the U S tend to be later to that. So that's something that I really learned with my kid home in the pandemic, like, oh, you know, we, we had like outsourced a lot of the cleaning. And so he had never really seen me even sort laundry. I'm embarrassed to say. And so having him be home for 18 months, I was like, here's some life skills. You're going to be a better roommate or partner to someone someday because you now know how to ball socks or whatever. And we're (laughs) going to like learn this skill because we don't need to hide all of the messy work of living in, in a house and being in, having a life from you. Um, it's happening all the time and you're just not seeing it. And you're thinking it's magic. Um, I will say TV too is an opportunity with kids, especially tweens and teens to maybe talk about some tough issues. So if you're watching a show, you know, like Ted Lasso, or we watched all of Friday Night Lights with our son, there's a tremendous opportunity to talk about the ways different families do things, to talk yes. about drugs and alcohol Yep. Um, in a way that's a little bit less kind of controlling than just being like, have any of your friends tried alcohol? You know, which is a little bit like most kids will shut down if you ask yeah, that and go into defensive mode. You're triangling in a third party, which always puts you on the same side as your child. So you're looking over here at the alcohol problem on the television show, and the two of you get to talk about that rather than it being monitoring, right? So it it offers that- Getting a sense of your kid's discernment, like, wow, all those kids showed up at that house when the parents were away and they didn't actually invite them. They only invited one friend. Like, what could, like, what could he have done differently? Or, you know, like what, what, what can he do in this moment? Like just getting those conversations and not, not even always asking, but even letting your kid just spontaneously share with you. But having that shared vocabulary of a show that you watch together as a family can be really nice. Uh, a and thousand it can be percent. family time as well. So I'm, I mean, I also like to have unplugged family time and play games with my kid. Right. But honestly, on a given weeknight, if we're all working and exhausted, like TV might be a more realistic evening activity for us than like, we're not always going to sit down and play Settlers of Catan on a Tuesday night. No. In fact, I remember Martha Beck saying that television is hearkening back to the days of storytelling around a campfire. And once I heard her say that, I thought, oh, that really helps me understand why we are all drawn to it. The flicker of light, the storytelling, it's a communal way to get to know other stories besides our own. So I do agree with you. And I think sports provide that as well. It's a, it's, it's a adrenaline release after a long day. One of the things that you mentioned, and I wanted to pivot here is paying attention to the data trail and the digital footprint we leave. How can we help our children understand that where they are and what they do and what shows up online has the possibility of following them for a very long time? It's also a reason parents need to be careful with how much content they share of their children. What do you say about that idea that our kids need to be careful with what they preserve about themselves? 
Well, I've just spent the last two years researching about this issue and writing a book that I just turned in called Growing Up in Public that'll be out in the fall of 2023. And in that research, I I mean, I I came to this with a strong sense that we shouldn't, well, we don't want to give kids a free pass and say post whatever. We also should all as parents be fighting for what they have in the UK and Europe, which is the right to be forgotten. The idea that something you post when you're 13 could come back and keep you from getting a job when you're 30 does seem to be a problem to me because developmentally, again, it's not that I don't want, I mean, I live with a 13 year old. He is accountable for what he says. He does need to be a good person. I'm not saying 13 year olds get a free pass, but I do think 13-year-olds have the opportunity to grow and do better. So even a 13-year-old who does say something really problematic can and and probably will, if given the right opportunity and the right support, grow to be a very different person by 20, 25, 30. And so by holding that person to what they said, you know, as a young adolescent or even as an older adolescent, I, I think that's very problematic. But that's the world we live in. So we need to be clear with our kids that that is the world we live in, that anything they say could come back. But I think threatening kids with that is a problem. And I think particularly, I hear a lot of parents threaten kids around things like college admissions and say, oh, you know, an elite college won't want you if you post these things. And and honestly, having worked when I was a grad student at Northwestern in admissions, they're not creeping on your middle school posts. And everyone walking around Northwestern had some, some cringy middle school post. It really takes a lot more than that for you to get in trouble at that level. I mean, yes, if you're you know, doing something where you're inciting violence or using hate speech in high school, like those things could, if they came to the attention of admissions officer, Um, even more so when you're looking for a job in your twenties, if you're looking in a place where they're bringing you in and you're going to have a very public position, that's where you'll see that level of scrutiny, where they really are going to go into your social media. Colleges get so many applicants. They really have to look at what they get. They get seven minutes or 10 minutes a kid at the most. They're not going to try to figure out what your Instagram handle is and see if you ever made a rude gesture five years ago in a, you know, or or used like bad language. Um, every kid walking around at every college campus has used some bad language. So I think we have to really teach our kids instead that other kids may not know you very well, but they may make wrong assumptions about you if you post in a really cruel way, if you're always sarcastic. Somebody's dad might be on that group text. And if you're constantly dropping F-bombs, like they're going to maybe pick a different kid to invite out for baseball and pizza. Like if that's you and there's three other kids, like you might not seem like the most charming one to come to dinner at their house. That's an honest kind of statement of what the consequences could be of posting certain things. And then also allowing kids to understand that this is only a sliver of the ways we get impressions of people. So asking kids questions like, have you ever met someone who was very different from how they appeared from their posts is a great question because they can start to think about how aligned they want to be and how authentic they want to be in relation to what they share uh, and that's really important. So I, I think the reputation question is really tricky because I, I think there's a real disconnect between the ways social media can be used. Um, I also think as adults, we have a strong responsibility never to circulate images of kids doing dumb things. Like we should just never, ever be part of, of um, you know, blowing that up or sharing that um, or circulating that. Even if we really don't like what we see, Uh, We should contact the kid directly if we know them or talk to the parents or do something other than amplify. Uh, Because when we amplify kids making bad choices or being unkind or worse, um, you know, hateful, we are participating in the problem. We're actually 
potentially harming people if if the, if that person has made a slur against a group, for example, where we're we're actually amplifying that, and we're participating in putting that child or teenager into a situation where they can't ever get that back. And so any work that they do to get better is going to be made more difficult by our sharing it. So we have to really look at our motivations. Like, are we just sharing to show that we're the rightest and they're the wrongest? That's not a very good motivation to share. Yeah, or even to mock. Like a lot of times you see parents even showing things that young children do because they're quote unquote cute. But when you're 14 and you get known for this cute moment that was kind of humiliating, like a a misspoken word or a a misbehavior, uh, that can produce a lot of shame. So we want to remember that there is a fragile person growing up. I'm I'm so eager to read your book. I'm excited that it's coming out. And I think it's especially challenging for homeschool parents. We are with our kids a lot. They do delight us. We're their biggest fans. We have our social media communities. We do love sharing pictures of the, the kids. Even my kids who are way grown up, like Instagram really wasn't the thing until my youngest was leaving high school. And my kids got to the point where they were like, can we just do this event without you pulling out the camera or pulling out the phone, mom? Because it starts to feel like a performance instead of a lived life. And that's, I think, uh, another aspect of this. It's not always that it's dangerous. It's that it's robbing a moment. It's creating a sense of image as opposed to experience. And image becomes burdensome, particularly for children. I think with homeschool families, especially if they want to involve kids with the documentation and choices around it, like say once a month, we're going to document the work and make a portfolio. Um, so kids don't feel like, cause a lot of kids do feel like their parents are sort of paparazzi and they <laughs> let me know that they hate being shared and that yeah. it's really stressing them out. So anytime we can ask our kids permission before we share, we're letting them know it's okay to say no, and we're giving them a boundary. And I think now that the conversation about consent has advanced to where it is, I think we're also like, like giving them permission to have that boundary is a really good thing for so many reasons. And we're we're making that as a social norm for them so that when they start taking and sharing pictures of friends, they know that they should ask first before they share. Like that. And then it's okay to say no. Yes, a thousand percent. So here's the hardest question I have for you. What decisions did you make around cell phones for your own family, for your son? How do parents decide when is the right time to give them the power in their pocket? And how much should they use Gab, like a phone for texting and safety, but doesn't include the internet? Or should they start with the internet so they can go through that mentoring and not just be given the internet at age 18? What did you decide? Or if you don't want to share that, that's totally fine. But what would your recommendations be? Well, I do think a lot depends on where your kid is at. And for some kids, the phone is less of a big cliff to to sort of hurdle over because they're already maybe texting or using, you know, ga- cloud-based gaming, communicating with friends that way or using Discord. So I think sometimes parents make a big deal out of the phone in their minds. Um, it is a big transition. And especially now that our kids are more out and about again, especially in the lockdown years, I would say the phone was less of a transition because like, what could you not do on the computer at home that you can do with the phone, if, especially if you're not leaving home. Now that kids are back out in communities more, I think the phone is empowering. It gives them, I'm more likely to send my kid to try public transportation in Chicago on his own with a phone than I would be without, for example, because I think it's a real it's a real touch point. And we think Lenore Skenazi and other people who talk about free range kids have made that point that phones can be empowering. We can give our kids sometimes more independence because they have one. 
Um, in my family, my son had a phone that only texted in seventh grade. And then we did go to like the full phone by the end of seventh grade, um, around the time of his bar mitzvah, which is a big sort of coming of age in my community. Um, but we could have done it sooner. And I think he just wasn't really pushing that hard. He was definitely ready to text and make his own plans. I mean, there gets to be a point where it becomes kind of ridiculous to make plans for a kid seventh or eighth grade, certainly eighth grade. Like you're not going to be, I mean, I still get involved with other kids' parents about rides and, and stuff. And sometimes really things that are harder to schedule, like a big group, you know, D&D fest, I might like reach out to some moms and be like, okay, how does Saturday work versus Sunday? But in general, my kid is making his own plans and it doesn't really... I don't start any plans. Like I'm not reaching out to other 13 and 14 year olds, you know, to be like, can your kid come over? Because my kid would be extremely annoyed if I'm making, I mean, just like you would be annoyed, you know, if like your partner was making plans and was like, Hey, we're having a dinner party tonight. And you didn't know and didn't give consent. Like, that's not how it works that, you know, whereas little kids, we kind of do make plans for our kids. Um, and what's hard is I think for him coming out of the pandemic, like anticipating social need, like, like me and my husband, our son is also an introvert. And so he often doesn't feel social need until it really comes up. In other words, like it's very spontaneous. Like he won't anticipate having social need on the weekend until we get to the weekend. And we've, we're really working on acculturating him to plan for expecting, like most of the time you do want to see at least one friend over the weekend to, in our world, we don't have a lot of spontaneity. Like you're going to have to plan for that. You're going to have to see like by Wednesday or Thursday, if anyone's around, you might be able to find plans on like Saturday morning for later in the day, but we don't live in that kind of neighborhood. Like, so getting him to sort of learn those skills of anticipating future social desires. Um, so I would say I don't have a heavy texture. He's not using social, but that's his choice. Not a fan of TikTok, but a lot of kids are. And so I think you have to look at like, okay, my kid wants YouTube. My kid wants TikTok. Maybe we're going to start just with texting. Some families start with a watch. So I can't really recommend like any specific tech. I mean, I will say some of those like starter phones, like your Pinwheel or your Gab or all these other sort of new products on the market. It's a lot for parents to think about because it's not the phone that's in your drawer. That's like your old phone. But it is nice to not start out with that browser. I would say the browser is even sometimes more of a big deal than social media, depending on what your kid True. is into and looking for. True. So just not having that browser, not worrying about as much the distraction during the school day if they are going to school. Um, if you're homeschooling, you have a lot of control over that environment during the day. So you can probably have them like put it away. But we have a rule in our house, no double screening. That's probably a good rule for most families oh, to think about. Love um, that. And my son will call me out for double screening if I sit down to watch a show with him and I'm checking my email as the credits are rolling. He's like, wait, mom, didn't you say in screen wise, like no double screening? <laughs> like, oh yeah. So, that is, um, oh, that is amazing. So like while you're watching TV, don't play, you know, solitaire on your phone. Uh, exactly. While you're like, working. Be here now, be yeah. present. While you're on show. your phone, don't also have YouTube on, on your computer in the background. Like yeah. one and, at a time. And when you're, when you're doing work, don't be on the group text or don't be, you know, watching the game. Um, ah. <laughs> and, and we also teach our son to take breaks when he's writing and other things. And it's like, if you want to take a break, take a break. But a good brain break is usually physical because so much of what is hard for kids with transitioning away from screens is that they've lost touch with their bodies. So a good brain break is drinking some water, running around the block, doing some push-ups. YouTube is like not an ideal brain break from homework generally. No. I mean, kids may think it is, but it it really isn't because it it doesn't let your mind kind of rest and it doesn't bring you back to your body, which is so often what we need to do when we've been on a screen for a while. Well, you know what that reminds me of a little bit? I was just in New York over the weekend and I went to three museums in two days 
And by the third museum, my brain could not handle reading yet again another small description next to an exhibit. I was just saturated. And so I think what you're saying makes so much sense. Then we took a walk through Central Park and I felt so reinvigorated. I really think that what happens is you're using your brain and your mind to focus on this school project. You shift over to watching TV or even watching uh, YouTube. You're still using the same kind of thinking and absorbing and retaining strategies. Whereas if you get up and you go do running around the backyard with the dog or jumping on the trampoline, uh, your brain is actually having a break. You've relocated your locus of energy in your body. So I, these are strategies we use in homeschooling all the time. You do 10 minutes of math, you get up, you run around the backyard with the dog, you come in, and now it's time for handwriting. You don't do them back-to-back. And there's no right. reason to have classes back-to-back in homeschooling. You can always take a physical break or a snack break or something like that. Right. And you're getting back all the time that kids in schools, you know, are lining up and doing right. all the you know, bureaucratic stuff because you're not doing right. that. So yeah, I, I think that's a great, I love this though. No double screening. I feel like I just felt very convicted by that. I do exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. If I get bored watching a football game, if it's just not moving very quickly, I'm, I'm over there scrolling. I am. Right. That's and then a it's point. a question of asking yourself, wait, if this isn't bringing me joy, like if I'm not loving this football game, maybe I need to turn it off and get up and go do something else. Right. Exactly. What a concept. In fact, I was thinking back to the 80s and early 90s before we had the internet, which I remember quite well because I was a full-grown adult and I was quite productive. I taught myself to draw. I learned how to make yogurt from scratch. I learned how to cook from scratch. I was living in a, another country, learned two languages. I taught myself quilting. I learned how to navigate Fez, the old city in Fez. It was my goal in Morocco to learn how to navigate it without a guide. And I did within a year. Uh, I learned how to do all the functions I needed to do to host parties. I was making clay objects for my own like fun little um, knickknacks. I, I made all of my holiday cards from scratch. They were printed, you know, with like awesome. these potato prints, right? And I... I was thinking back to all that. It's because I was so bored. I read more books in those four years than I've read the rest of my life. And it's because there was no TV. There was no telephone. There was no internet yet. I didn't have a lot of friends because we were isolated. I'm not recommending this life, by the way. Yeah. But what I am saying is that it was interesting how I chose to fill that time. And I do think there is a narcotic effect of passive receiving of entertainment. And the older I get, the less motivated in some ways I am to acquire new skills and talents, right? I taught myself to sew. I mean, so many things. I look back, I think, God, yeah, I, mean, I think I mean, it's funny because I am a real tech positive person. And I think that we can live with this stuff and it can be great. Me too. Um, but I will say, if you want to read a book about, you know, kids getting back to, uh, other things. There's a great book called Winter of Our Disconnect about a family that unplugged for a year and the kids did like go back to their musical instruments and just sort of take on some really fun things that um, they had abandoned. So um, that's a fun book if you want to look at that. I mean, I think that, you know, just even going back to the idea of having like one day or a half day off of, of you know, like Tiffany Schlein wrote 24-6, but you know, it's a 6,000 year old idea to take a Sabbath. This is not an idea that's new for human beings. Um, even if you don't take a full day a week, even saying like, okay, we're going to unplug, you know, 
Friday nights or Sunday mornings or whatever it is. And just really looking at what that unplugged time looks like. For us, one of the only rules that's really sacrosanct around tech is bedtime and putting it away and not going to bed with our screens on. And, I like it. And that's really important. And, and honestly, if you pick one battle with your kids around tech, I would say fight really hard for sleep because sleep is so important for our physical and mental health. It's so important for everything. And um, I was with a group of teenagers right before the pandemic hit in Portland, Oregon, and they all were clutching their coffees. I was speaking to them at their high school. And I said, if you had access to a drug that was free and legal and had no bad effects and just made you smarter, better looking, more athletic and in a better mood, would you want it? And they were like, "Uh uh-huh. And I was like, it's sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And you know, the old adage, nothing good happens after midnight. I know just from a personal um, connection in my life, someone who's texting became really dangerous to their daughter. Uh, And it all happened after midnight, right? And this was back in the beginning of texting before the internet was even on our phones. And the family didn't know because it was happening after midnight. And I think sometimes that's also something we need to remember is that our kids willpower when their hormones are raging and when they're young and inexperienced makes it very difficult for them to hold boundaries. They may not like the boundary you set, but they will be relieved that they don't have to set it. And so sometimes just being able to say, this is the stage we're in, nighttime is sleeping, we don't have our phones in our rooms, everybody is tuned out, this is where we recover. Um, I think it's I think it's valuable. We can't spend that relational currency all day, every day, and expect our kids to just take our control. But if we select those rare moments that seem crucial to their health and well-being, your kids will respect you in the long run. A hundred percent. And I think that's why, even if you do go with a phone or a connected device younger, like with a you know nine or 10 year old, they're going to be pretty compliant. Maybe they don't have that many friends they're texting, but you have to remember that could be a 15 year old in love in a few years. And that person might want to stay up all night texting their sweetie. So I would kind of start with the connected devices, not being in, room, in bedrooms overnight, even if it, you know, with like a younger kid might seem pretty harmless because they'll turn it off and put it away and be really compliant. Um, nice. And then the flip side is right before they're going to leave and, and launch into college or gap year or service or anything. That would be a good time to, you know, teach them how to self-regulate, put it on airplane mode because no one's going to take it from them in their college dorm. So you don't want that to be the first time they've ever had to practice any self-regulation. But I would say most kids in the early to mid-teen years probably can't self-regulate very well around a connected Uh device in their room. And it's not a fair expectation developmentally. I mean, I used to try to sneak our landline into my bedroom at night as a teenager. I just couldn't get away with it very well. And it was hard to call anyone because most of the phones would ring in someone's house and they would get in trouble. So I only had a few friends who could even like get calls late at night. So I think it's, you know, important to recognize that this has been an adolescent urge, you know, since the dawn of time. And this is why kids love sleepovers is, you know, some of them just want to be connected so much, Um, but better to have the occasional sleepover, (laughs) you know, than to, uh, than to be, I think, digitally connected at night and sort of fall asleep together on on the phone. It's not, not so great. 
I, I remember Brene Brown saying that when she would have these adolescent gatherings at her house, she had a basket that all of the kids would put their phones in because she said if she was going to have a gathering of teens, she wanted them talking to the teens who were present, not the teens who were on their screens. And I thought that was also, I never had to deal with that. My kids are of a different era, but I thought that was a lovely idea. And I think we're experimenting and I think asking for our kids' feedback is important as well. Like, here's what I'm noticing. Here's what I'm feeling. What are you noticing? What are you feeling? How can I support you in learning how to manage? You know, sometimes your kids want your support. Sometimes they want to test. I had a son who was like, I want to stay up and game all night and sleep during the day. And I was very upset about that until I found out that his best friend for gaming lived in Croatia. And uh -huh. this was the time the kid was online. And I once I realized that and he was homeschooling, I just let him flip his sleep needs. So he would sleep until like one or two in the day. And he'd stay up until one or two at night. And sometimes it's just having the logical conversation, not assuming and figuring Absolutely. out how you can I mean, support for an adolescent, them. That's probably an ideal, yes. you know, closer to ideal sleep schedule. And if they are not constrained by having to be at school at a certain time right. or work at a certain time, then great. I think it's all about, you know, living, living a life that makes sense within what you can do. But if you know your kid Sit. has to be up at 8 a.m., you oh, don't want then them that won't work. Well, okay. No, yeah. that would not work. Absolutely. And once he went to school, that was like, the same. So yeah. often when kids won't unplug, it's like they've got a friend they're worrying about. So maybe they've got a friend who's in a crisis. Ooh. So even bringing that out of them. That's really a good point. I do know that's true too. Yeah. And they carry that very heavily. You know, the first time they experience the weight of someone's serious problem is huge for a teen. Uh, and they feel it keenly. They feel the responsibility keenly. That's beautiful. Well, goodness, Devorah, we could talk for another hour easily, but this is such an important topic for today's parents. Your book, ScreenWise, is phenomenal. I recommend it. We're so eager to read Raising Kids in Public. That's going to be amazing. Where else can our audience connect with you? I have a class that's like a free seven-day email class for just like hitting the reset button. So if you're like, it's a new year or a new week or a new day, and I just want to change a couple of our habits, or I want some good ideas for how to shift my family's tech habits, um, you can go to the link in the show notes. It's devoreheitner.com tech reset, but you can go to the link in the show notes and join that there at any time and just, you know, start your seven day reset whenever you get the first email. Um, and you can just come to my website, devoreheitner.com. If you want to bring me to your school or your workplace or your community group, I do speak to homeschool groups and I'm always happy to kind of like, if you have a regional group, for example, um, I've spoken to unschoolers. I'm, I'm very open to having those conversations. And I think that talking about any parenting book, um, you know, mine, Julie's books, other people's books, it's just a great way to come together with other parents. And I think that that community right now is so crucial. And around tech, I think if you can cultivate relationships with parents of kids who are even just slightly older than yours uh -huh. to go to for advice, to be like, what do you wish you knew before you got Minecraft for your kid? Or what do you <laughs> wish you knew before you greenlit TikTok? Or what do you, you know, what, what would you tell me like from your sage... <laughs> situation. Or if you have other kids in your lives, like nieces and nephews who are perhaps in their twenties and there's some app or something you don't know about that, they're great because they will so probably good. know about it. And to be kind of out there maybe with your kids in those spaces, because it's, I think we can't be everywhere and we can't be familiar with everything. We have to really 
you know, have a team in a village in this and be kind of in a conversation with other people who can help us help our kids and mentor our kids. Oh, that's such wonderful advice. I totally agree with the late teen, early 20s person to ask. That is a fantastic piece of advice. Thank you so much, Devorah, for being with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Phew. That was a great freewheeling conversation. I don't know about you, but I feel much more confident in how I'm going to be around my grandchildren when we're talking about screens and technology. If you'd like to join the conversation with Devora or herself, be sure to follow her on Instagram. We've linked it in the show notes, and she's very easy to find because her name, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, is pretty unique, even on that platform. You can also follow her at Twitter. If you'd like to have more of these conversations with our staff or between yourself and other brave writer families who have a similar philosophy, take a look at joining the Brave Learner Home. The Brave Learner Home is the membership community I built about eight years ago now that is meant to foster the kinds of conversations that you crave so that you're able to go into your home education and parenting feeling challenged and equipped. And oh, by the way, even if your kids are in school, you will find so much benefit there. You can either pay a one-time fee for a lifetime membership, or you can purchase our products or one of our online classes and be added for free forever. Go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer to learn more. That link will be in the show notes as well. Thanks for joining me today. Hey everyone, it's Natalie with the Brave Writer team and I have yet another five-star review. Today's comes from Courtney Brazil and it's titled A Deep Sigh of Relief. This podcast is always an upbuilding experience. It never leaves me feeling like there's more academic work that I need to do with my children. Rather, it helps me to truly value what we have already done academically. And I'm inspired to see the meaningful connections we had throughout the day as a necessary education that builds their heart and soul, not just their mind. I am almost caught up to the most recent podcast, and I can't wait to go back to the beginning and listen to them all over again. Thank you, Julie, and the entire Brave Writer team for this free resource that brings me so much peace. Thank you to Courtney Brazil. Don't forget to submit your five-star review so we can share it here on the podcast. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.